to do a prayer for this moment.
and I've been dedicated to this plant in this community ever since. Dragonfly Earth Medicine has been, um, our goal has always been self-sufficiency. And before the internet and before, you know, we had a, community, a, a connection to everyone in the world like we do now, which is really, really amazing, is we had the, uh, the gusto to go far away out in the mountains and make it work on the land. And we were surrounded by a community of, of self-sufficiency Quakers um, up in British Columbia. This is our, our home up there. And we started out in Oregon and Eugene, and it's really radical there. And we learned about herbalism and midwifery and, and using that on the land. Um, but by going up to British Columbia in that time, it was really, really far away. And we didn't um, uh, want to rely on anything but was, was what our surroundings are. So we have um, been growing closed loop on our farm for over 20 years now. And not on this particular piece of land. We've been here for 13 years, but in the community, um, it's been 20 years of just growing off the property and growing, you know, really amazing strains and boutique strains and um, hemp strains and different things to explore what that is in a really difficult environment farther up north. We're connected to Oregon and California and that, that kind of realm, but it was just like, how does that work in different environments? And if you're traveling the world, we're, you know, that's part of what we have an offering to is to help people in their bioregion. Um, and, and closed loop was a good idea back then for us because we were gorilla farmers and it was really hard to carry any kind of amendments way out into the bush. Now we're realizing that it's not just a good idea for that and also saving money, but it's a good idea because now we're dealing with testing. Testing is a real reality in the cannabis industry, not only just testing of flour, but also testing concentrates. And I'm sure a lot of you all know that you can test your flour and your flour is going to come up totally fine. Well, then you sell, you know, 100 pounds of that flour to a concentrator and then it comes back dirty. So the reason why we push closed loop so much is because you know where every single amendment and every single nutrient and anything is coming from your own farm. It makes you not only self-sufficient, in monetary concerns, but it also makes you self-sufficient because you have the knowledge of everything that has come onto your farm. That's important because when you want to go sell that 100 pounds to a concentrator, you want it to come back clean. It's imperative. Just like Leighton was saying yesterday, we don't have the ability with corporate cannabis and then giving us this sort of alternative reality of what cannabis can be to fail one crop. We have to be successful all the way through. So um, we're going to start off by just talking about the, the problem that we face and, and why we have created the, the pure cert certification, which has been over six years now, which is really an activist. It was originally an activist movement because it was before the time of full legalization and before the time of state regulation. And we were just seeing butane and um, hash oil and all kinds of things that were really harmful hitting the market and there was no regulation to it and there was no federal funding or um, federal regulations. So really it was an opportunity for to, to take the natural lifestyle and the gift that the cannabis has given us, which is natural systems, and create a, uh, a certification that was going to be a land use certification and a product certification and really a way of life which really kind of briefly you know, lent itself into a regenerative farming movement. Um, 
And we can look at all of you know the problem is our waterways, synthetic land use, the carbon release, carbon sequestering is incredibly important right now, part of closed loop farming, a lot of what we're gonna be teaching you up here, or what you already have learned within this community, this amazing community, is about carbon sequestering. Monoculture, with that comes soil death, uniform cannabis strains. We all know that what we have been producing in our closets and you know in, in the black market and trading cannabis strains with each other and putting it in a very stressful situation, you can take a beautiful full spectrum cannabinoid uh, and terpene seed, you can grow it in a really horrible environment like this and it's gonna become high THC and high nursing. THC, is a stressor in the same way that cortisol is a stressor to our body. All of the other full spectrum cannabinoids is what's making that plant feel good and being in its own natural environment. So I'm really encouraging you all to you know, look at that and, and, and be creating full spectrum cannabinoids. And we're gonna be talking about that later. But what this all leads to is that we're looking at 90% of species death on this planet. And we can talk about, you know, we're losing, you know, the black rhino and all these large animal species. That's exactly the same as what's happening in, in our own microbiome. It's what's happening in our soil. We're losing tremendous amounts of diversity because of the problem. And I believe that the reason why we're having this problem is because we have lost 90% of the diversity in our microbiology. And if we are a beautiful petri dish for all of this you know, my microbiology, then if we're filling our bodies with tens of pathogens, then we're not able to think properly. We're not able to not only have a healthy system and a healthy body, and be able to fight disease. I know that everybody here in this room right now has a good family member or a friend that is dying of cancer. We have reached a critical state. And I think that we've reached this critical state is because we can't think properly. So not only do Josh and I talk about how small farmers are gonna be changing the world, we honestly believe that smart farmers are the only ones that can change the world because we need to bring back the microbiology that is gonna make us intelligent and make us healthy again so that we can make better decisions that are, do not look like that big tract, you know, big agriculture that you were looking at. We already know that having any kind of pathogens within your microbiome is causing all these maladies within our system and also within our emotional state. And this is just a really great example to see that all, all of this is related to soil. When we look at the gut microbiome and we see a healthy gut microbiome, which is supposedly only one in every 10,000 people, if you're lucky, that's how much we've lost, then those people are the ones that are holding the healthy microbiology, and when we compare that healthy microbiology, that's what we find in the soil also. Deep within the soil, we find that in old growth forests. So if we can bring back all of that healthy microbiology within all of your own farms and all of your own, even in indoor cultivation, 
And then we're working with that, and then we're passing that on. And that becomes a much larger picture of health and vitality and wellness. So the solution is working together, because no one person knows everything. We um, benefit from all you all, and we benefit from the people around us. Um, we are surrounded by amazing people, and it really takes us being smarter than the system to really to be able to move for, to be able to move forward. So part of uh, us creating the peer certification as an activist movement was to really help us all in moving forward to have the confidence to be able to make some of the changes that it was going to take for us to make it. So we've come together to create. Um, uh, a system that shows regenerative farming and shows um, soil building and shows um, re working together and how it can create food production and clean medicine and how saving your seeds is so important because you know even with hybridization of foods we've lost our our cultivars and foods and, and to have really colorful foods in our life feels really really good and we you know don't have to rely on you know, going to the store because that's a system that could that could break and it's empowering for us to grow our own stuff. So part of our certification is to grow food and to grow fruit along with your cannabis and it does benefit your cannabis because it create, creates an ecosystem that's in your area. So bio, biodiversity, pollinator gardens and polyculture diversity is essential to the way that we grow. It enhances our terroir and our Appalachian and in Appalachian and wine and wine um, country is you know having to do with your soil and the specific bacteria that you have and the specific microbiology that you have in your area that affects the terpenes and the flavors within the food and the flavonoids and the, and the drinks and the grapes and it's the same for cannabis and there's a lot of people working on sommelier work where you can taste you know the different flavors of your Appalachian and of your terroir and I know in Michigan you guys are you know you have a lot of good soil you have a lot of really beautiful trees you have a lot of abilities to work with your natural environment and I think you all really kind of know that you have a really magical thing here and the more that you can build up your bio region and some of those things is going to really benefit you and your story being able to sell your product which is also really important to us is to be able to create a product and help people create products that are smart that are long lasting and um, can stand the test of time. And so with the solution is also, you know, taking care of our culture, the cannabis culture. I, you know, I don't know about you all, but I'm a white girl from the East Coast. I don't really have much of a culture. But when I started smoking cannabis, I found all y'all. You're my family, you're my culture, and this plant connects us all.
this too much energy. Hello. So here's our agriculture. Here's our culture of uh, agronomy and us coming together. And so um, everywhere we've gone um, recently, we have been surrounded by amazing people, and people can you know, say what they want about social media and, and the way it connects people, but really it's brought amazing people into our lives and we're really thankful to that. So we're gonna be sharing pictures of our journey, but also the farms that we represent. There's pictures of better farms in here too. And uh, you know, we're really thankful to the Emerald Cup and Jesse and the Regenerative Farm Award. We won the Regenerative Farm Award with these practices in the first year and it's really caught on. And we've seen a lot of farms take on the practice and really come up with really amazing strains and even started winning cups and it's really good. So um, we find that it's just really essential to learn soil building. Soil building is gonna be probably one of your most essential things in creating your system. That's gonna be something that's gonna be long lasting. And, it's, and part of the problem with modern agriculture and, and the way that, that legalization with cannabis has come, there's a lot of waste involved and throwing your, your dirt away. In some states, there's, there's dumpsters filled with dirt getting thrown away. And that obviously doesn't make any sense, especially if you're using biology and minerals, which takes a long time to break down. So really, it's the longevity of soil that makes, that makes sense. And um, us learning composting is essential in moving forward. So one thing that, that I had an epiphany about is that, um, you know, Mother Nature, she's amazing. It's nice to think about her often. I know a lot of you all here do think about her. And you just sort of like wonder, hmm, nature, she really only does one thing. That's make dirt. That's really all she does. She makes dirt continuously. And then she turns that dirt into soil. So I think that that is an incredible goal that we all need to look forward to. So if we're going to bring back health and culture into this community, let's start with soil. And let's talk about the dirt. Um, let's talk about soil. So uh, we create our own soil on our land by using indigenous microorganisms. Um, Josh, I'm gonna hand it over to and um, learning about different, Chris comes amazing with the work that he does with teaching people about natural farming, those methods, and, and it's really uh, beautiful to learn that, and it's really empowering because it teaches you how to take your local environment and um, turn it into something that works. Um, we have uh, also a lot of people in our network that you know are working with biodynamics, and biodynamics is really similar to natural farming in the sense of using you know horns and packing it with herbs like nettles and comfrey and yarrow and mixing it with um, with manure and burying it in the ground and being able to use that as an inoculant. So being in, and having that done over the winter. And if you do this type of method, you can then take that those horns out in the springtime and inoculate piles. And if even if you have an indoor garden, I think it makes all the sense in the world to have another piece of land that's not, you know, maybe connected to your warehouse or whatever that you are, even if you're in Detroit or in the city, you know, if there's an area where you can do some kind of, you know, large scale composting or some kind of work, that's going to be um, a model that's going to work for your business and moving forward because, you know, paying for things is, is really difficult. Um, but yeah, you can use the horns um, to inoculate the piles and that's how you create biodynamic compost is, and getting more organisms out of out of your soil. 
And so taking a lot of, you know, the dirt and which we consider the sand and silt, you know, in your regions that doesn't have a lot of um, biological diversity is how do you make that then? How do you take that subsoil layer that really doesn't have a lot of um, diversity? It may have mineral diversity, but how are you going to unlock that mineral diversity so that your plants can uptake it? And that's going to happen through microbiology. And the more diverse your microbiology is, the more capabilities that your plants has to uptake those nutrients. And when we talk about diversity in microbiology, we think that it's very important. One of the reasons why we you know, preach closed loop is also because the microbiology that grows in your own region and on your own farm and in your own area is going to be biologically intelligent to what you're going to grow in your area as well. It already knows your water. It already knows the environment. It already understands you know, how to work together. So it's just taking the intelligence of microbiology and just bringing it all into that dirt and making it soil. Um, right here is two boxes. Um, we collect indigenous microorganisms. This is underneath our grape leaves. We take a lot of different boxes. It may be a box, it may be a pile that we also work with. Um, and we will collect indigenous microorganisms here with rice, using rice. Um, because then it's a nice carbohydrate as well as a nice sugar for, you know, these wonderful indigenous microorganisms to attach themselves onto. And this is also um, using dregs from an um, organic alcohol um, company. So there's a link, they may um, make vodka, and so this is the organic um, ancient grain that they use afterwards. So that felt really good to us to use that because then we know that like, you know, where it was growing initially was growing in the standards that we feel good about. So we try, you know, our main thing is to use everything organic in, in that realm. So this is a way of making use of something that might throw away. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there, there probably is a Michigan biodynamic network, and if someone knows about it, you guys should talk amongst each other, but there's also JPI um, out of uh, Virginia, and you can order online, you can order the inputs. Yeah, the, the question was, where, if you can't make your own biodynamic inputs, where can you buy them, or, or can you get them from your local area? So yes, you can. And you can find them online, and they're easy to get. And you, you know, it's, it's great to learn that. But if you make them in your local area, it's going to be more, you know, beneficial to your garden. So you know, maybe you start out by buying it from from a different organization, but then maybe end up you know, making it after you learn what's in it and everything like that. Um, this is a, a 134 cannabis plants chipped up and. And, and made into a compost pile. So that's a whole entire, you know, field of cannabis that's been chipped up and they're, they got it ready in the fall to sit over winter. And uh, this is Radical Herbs, give thanks to them. And uh, they, uh, yeah, they're gonna be able to turn that in, back into their soil and that's the way that they did not, that they were able to process the stocks and everything that they work with. And then everything that they gave to those plants is then all left in that pile. So they put love, they put intention, they put money, they put nutrients, everything into that pile. Let's not let it go unwasted. One of the most important, viable things that we have in the industry is our own cannabis plants. 
And if we're just even putting our own cannabis plants back into our soils, back into our systems, back into our ferments, then we're taking one intelligence from last season's crop and we're giving it to the next season's crop and that can only be good, right? Yep. Yep. So uh, here it is, using our local mycology, we think that it's really important. Get to know your species in your area and make sure that you know, you're not dealing with any problematic uh, mycelium, which really there isn't too much. Hmm? Yeah, our malaria is one that you wanna be careful of and that's the honey mushroom, but pretty much other than that, you know, it can easily go into your ferments. Here's a picture of the beginning of a ferment. We work with uh, fresh plant extract. We make ferments on our property. We use them immediately. We really don't have a need for a shelf life on any of our stuff because we grow seasonally. If we keep any of our mothers, we, you know, we'll, we'll keep some nutrients and maybe we'll do some sprouting and stuff during the winter. But we really feel like fresh is best because there's a tremendous amount of cyanobacteria that's on the outside of your plant leaves and your structure. You have gorgeous leaves and you also know that you have gorgeous microbiology and that microbiology is all within your plants here. And um, these are just different inoculants that can go into your soil building and so doing uh, water hash extractions are really wonderful because you can get you know amazing hash out of it but also the byproduct is really really usable <laughs> and we would turn our um, uh, our leaf and in, back into a bokashi or some kind of a compost, but a lot of times there's a lot of water in there if you're going to make bokashi or something, so they used an apple press to press the water out. And then um, you can use um, the uh, bokashi, you can get bokashi or lactic acid in there, and then you can also use it as a soil inoculant in moving forward, and just using fresh leaves in your soil as you're building, um, you know, or using as a top layer is a beautiful thing, and it's really, really nice to have that as a cycle. So yeah, just compost outside, using utilizing leaves. You guys have deciduous trees here everywhere. They're essential because the tap roots go down and they're, that, that's your, your, your trace minerals. They're, they're gonna also provide a lot of life and the leaf mold is really beneficial to your compost. I mean, just talking about deciduous trees because you all are so abundant in them. Just like Josh said, it's a minor. You can go out and, and, and get a soil test and maybe it could tell you, you know, what your plant's not uptaking or what's deficient in your soil. And really, you can find all of those answers in tree leaves that are amazing minors. You know, utilizing those leaves in the fall time. We have um, some pure certified farmers that actually go in front of big trucks and you just make sure that you would get this from a clean area and just collect all of the leaves in you know, different sort of suburban areas and they'll just get mounds and mounds of it and it makes instant soil. So this is gonna be something that really remineralizes your soil very quickly and worms love to eat it. Um, and also, you know, talking about using, we were talking about wood chips. A lot of this is everywhere. Whenever there's downed wood and in this area, they're chipping it up. Where is it going? Find out where it's going. Find out if it's clean first, and it's not something that's been on a roadside. But getting chips, this is like huge piles. Where is this in California? Oh yeah, in the Gorge in Oregon. After a major windstorm, and I've seen a lot of landscaping companies in the area, and, and Layton talked about it, the tree tips and everything, and just the kind of you know, that's kind of a, a resource that's really valuable to you and carbon sequestration and having carbon in the ground is 
really essential in creating a more higher fungal um, soil. And so that's kind of part of longevity and, and water retention. So um, also sawdust is really useful and you can put that in the aisles or in between your plants. Question? Uh, what do you think about like cedar or pine wood chips? Because where I'm at, there's a lot of pine. Yeah, so the question is what about cedar and pine? And then that would be, is it too acidic? And, and so um, there is a limitation, you know, to, to everything. And cedar, uh, pine is different than cedar in a lot of ways. Pine is a lot more assimilable and pine is often used in horse, um, horse stalls and you can get a lot of pine shavings and stuff. And I would say that's pretty readily available and really usable, I would say. Um, um, with, the, uh, with the cedar or something that's a little bit got more oils in it, more acidic, it can definitely be, I mean, you know, if I'm gonna throw a number out there, you know, up to 20, 20% or something, you can, you can put a good portion of that into your, um, into your beds or into a chipper or into, you know, into your aisles in between and let that over, you know, go over the year and it's gonna break down just fine. Biology's gonna come and biology, the matrix of the biology is gonna, you know, change everything. So you'll be good with that. Just don't overdo it. I've heard black walnut can be something that can kill other plants. Have you heard anything about that? Yeah. Black walnut is one that I wouldn't use. Okay. Absolutely, I wouldn't be using any black it just has super, super high tannins. It's actually great to be used in a foliar spray. Um, and it you know, can be helpful to get rid of pathogens on your leaves. And eucalyptus is another one that you really don't want to use. That's something that we talk about in California. But black almond is something that you all have readily available here. But here's a beautiful picture of you know, a mycelial web. This is readily available. This is on sawdust and chips. Um, so basically, it's like giving your mycelium and your fungi instant food. And we always believe to have different sizes of wood chips, you know, from sawdust all the way to really big, you know, branches is a great idea because then it, it makes it readily available for a certain amount of time. And there's certain type of fungi that might be more attracted to, you know, the sawdust than ones that would be attracted to the chips. So. What we have found over and over and over again when we go do consulting and you know really large cannabis farms or even small cannabis farms is that when we test the soil, it's incredibly bacterial rich with people that are really on top of it, but their fungi counts are all the way at the ground, they're at the bottom. So we're, we're finding a lot of pathogens and things directly related to that. So having a, a really large fungal colony as well as a large bacterial diversity is important. And the only way that you're going to get that is by adding diversity in your soil. Because you want to be able to add different food sources for different types of biology. That only makes sense. And it also is a way of kind of collecting IMOs, sort of slow IMO over the course of a year. You know, if you have wood chips piled up in a certain part of your land, they're going to just grow with the, with the um, you know, with the biology that is there. If you put them in between your plants or in between your rows, it's going to be, you know, keep water in, and it's a really good way. You can also, this is inoculated with garden giant Kingstrophaeria, and um, agriculture is, you know, uh, is a big driver of climate change and, and, the, and, and waterways going dead and, and dead zones in the ocean and dead zones that kill fish. So if we can utilize techniques on our land that make it um, a, a positive impact on our environment, then that, that's what makes the most sense to us. So having a, a really high fungal rich um, web across your garden, every time it rains, you're gonna 
Well, like Elaine Ingham talks about, you know, retaining your nutrients and everything. This is a way to retain your nutrients and also filter the water so that you're not impacting the land in the way that's negative and you're retaining everything. So that's really important. One thing that we um, notice is maybe in the springtime you might be looking for more instant soil and what kind of things can you do to start off your, your nursery. And I want to get going on some kind of soil. I want to be able to have it readily available. You can you can do a hot compost or a thermophilic compost, um, and that works. But I think what we what we can share after homesteading for so many years is that we've really done away with hot composting because Josh and I always laugh, but it's really true: is that we're really farming for when we're 85. We want to be healthy and we want to be able to work work the same systems that we're working right now. And we want to be just as successful at it when we're 85 as we are now. So the way to do that is to set up really smart systems. And one smart system that's worked for us is just cold composting. And cold composting is just piles all around your property. Let them sit for a year. Let them be outside. If you want to cover them, you can cover them. But also utilizing your beds as your compost. Constantly layering. Why go and have compost piles other places when you can just layer right on top of the beds that you already have available and you really don't have to work at that? And that's something that we're going to be successful at when we're 85. So easy flow. The less time and energy that it takes you to build your soil, build your gardens for more successful yields and, and, and successful um, health, is, is the better thing that you want to do. And we've really found that just adding different layers to the beds is a great idea. And also just utilizing what you have throughout the year. If someone you might know hunts or someone has cows and they don't know what to do with their bones and there's you know a way that you can, um, we don't really um, recommend burning too much because I think it's really important to utilize the, 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 the wood and the carbon without burning. And also with hot composting, it's, it puts a lot of carbon in the air. So hot composting might be a really good thing for propagation soils. I mean, that might that might make a lot of sense, and that's why mushroom cultivators use hot composting techniques because it gets rid of all of the the seeds and and it can make a you know an easier medium. So hot composting can be can be utilized, and and it does. You do with the thermophilic. Um, microorganisms, you do lose um, some uh, nutrients in that process. So cold, cold composting and you know static composting and stuff really does retain all the, the nutrients better. That's going to be your most like if you test that afterwards, it's going to have the most life in it. So, but burning bones or um, um, shells is a way to slowly unlock the uh, ability for the microorganisms and the roots to utilize it as a home and as a as a Things. So you can have burns where you put, you know, get it going and then put bones in it and then throw dirt on top of it and then let it slowly burn out. Um, and that can be a way to just slowly burn the bones out and then utilize them in your, in your soils. And also this is biochar and ash and potash. And you guys, a lot of people have, you know, wood stoves over the winter. You can collect a lot out of your wood stoves or something like that. So that's a, just a, a good, useful um, item in building soil. Um, having an outdoor carport is, is really um, useful for indoor gardeners because it, it, it allows you to stop the rain and, and not get oversaturated if you're you know, starting a worm farm. There's a certain humidity that makes the most sense to get your, your biggest breakdown. And um, having bins that you have different 
uh, you know, stages that makes a lot of sense and you can gather your, your materials from local, um, you know, restaurants or, or um, hotels or whatever it is where you can get stuff from the roadside. But you have to be really careful with where you get it from because it could have residues in it and stuff. So you have to be really mindful of that. But we really recommend for the indoor growers that you have some kind of a, and maybe even in Michigan it does get really cold and stuff, so possibly walls and some kind of an indoor thing makes a lot of sense for worm production and, uh, and compost production. <laughs> this is a worm farm that's outdoors and it's just simple, it doesn't take much, it, just, it takes a little bit of effort to get your, your um, system set up and once you do it's extremely beneficial to your um, saving money. Um, so in moving forward and as a business model, indoor growing makes a lot of sense, but having um, an outdoor plot or being able to utilize your outdoor and your sun, I think we feel is going to be essential in staying profitable as a business model. And we have one, um, you know, just example here of having a greenhouse and then having some mounds off to the side and then a tea house that's elevated. And if you have a tea house that's elevated, it just allows you gravity feed and then you can be up in a, over your garden overlooking everything and that that's, um, makes a lot of sense and then maybe you can learn timber framing in the way and that would be really sweet too. Um, also we've seen, you know, the past five years we've seen the successes and, and the non-successes and the thing that, that is being really talked about is that once uh, cannabis goes federally legal then we're going to be able to have importation as well as exportation importation, you know, and I don't want to be fear-mongering by any means, but I also want to give you all a little bit of a reality check, is that the amount per gram that can be produced in another country as opposed to here is phenomenal. So we really need to have those conversations. Those are sobering conversations that we need to have with each other on how is it that we can get our cost per gram all the way down to where we feel like we can move a little bit and not feel that stress and not be able to sleep at night. And the successes that we've seen in the industry right now are the ones that didn't put much into their gardens at all. So if you have an indoor garden facility, of course your, your, your costs are gonna be much higher per gram. So why not have a portion of your indoor facility, a greenhouse, a light deck greenhouse in Michigan is, is definitely what we suggest to you all as far as the highest quality product, the highest quality medicinal compounds, the lowest cost, and also something that you all can hit the market with. And I think that that's something to look at. We live up in BC, we understand cold climate, we know short climate. We have the horrible monster of rain come at us on September 1st. So we have to be done. And my suggestion to you all here, and when I've been talking to a lot of people here in this room, is that to be done by September 15th. Light depping, this doesn't mean huge, massive cost. We pull tarps, people. We've been doing that now for 20 years because it's easy for us. And it's something that we can count on. So really look at you know what's going on in your daytime and figure out when it's gonna be best to, to cover your, your greenhouses. And we're gonna give you some examples here of how to do it completely low cost. And then just throw some kind of hoops over it and, and pull a tarp. And that's something that's gonna be incredibly viable for Michigan. And just, yeah, 
Give thanks to you. Um, and we just came back from Thailand and we were talking about their new medical program and what it means in Thailand to have a new medical program. And they were just saying, oh, well, it's, it's, it's basically a big corporate program because it's, it's, it's universities and corporate companies that are coming in and doing medical. And then they said that they're not going to be able to have enough farms initially, so they're going to have to buy their weed from Canada and Switzerland and send off pallets of weed to different countries. And that's already happening right now. So licensed producers in Canada, they're federally legal and shipping their herbs to different countries right now. And those countries are also getting ready to ship their herb to Canada because Canada doesn't have the ability to produce enough um, for, their, for their people at this moment in time. So basically what that tells us is um, to save the small farmer and save the people that really started this all, which is our big mission, and to keep the relevance as this regenerative farming movement plays into it also. Being able to provide, um, you know, herbs at a low price is, is not, it's, it's, it's an essential thing, so where it's not a fear-mongering thing as much as it is just a reality to understand. And, it, and it's a beautiful win-win situation because it allows you to, to capture, you know, more magic, and that's another thing we're learning with the new laws is, is opening up of the realization of soil diversity and how it affects the turbines and the cannabinoids. So, um, Hugo culture, and before when you used to, you know, do gardens, it was really just buy a big pile of soil and a bunch of pots and have like a soil that you thought was ready for the whole year and then go, and that would be a huge cost in the beginning of the summer. So, um, for the last two years, farms have just really been going into the earth and just really trusting that that's a good thing. And so we're just going to really encourage you to do the same thing. And, you know, there's Sepp Holzer in Austria has shown that even in a, a really harsh environment, you can grow really amazing things. And we're seeing the benefits in desert climates. We're seeing the benefits in California, Oregon, tropical climates in Bali, even where we were, um, Jamaica and British Columbia. So it's like it's an essential way to build fungi and utilize rocks in your local area. So. We're going to give you a bunch of different examples. One example is if you're on a hillside, you can utilize logs that you're cutting down and you can inoculate those logs with medicinal mushrooms like reishi, um, uh, maitake, shiitake, uh, lion's mane. Those are um, extremely beneficial mushrooms, but you have to use green trees, you can't use And having secondary products is another way that we're all going to stay in this industry. So what else can you grow from your, from your land? You know, last night we were talking on the panel about how horrible mono cropping and monoculturing is, and same with mono economy. We need to have poly economy, poly products. What are the things you're growing on your farm that is coming into fruition when cannabis isn't? So that you can have a little push to get you until, you know, cannabis season. Strawberries, phenomenal price. Organic strawberries, they grow well here blueberries, any kind of berry, you know, what is it that's going to grow well on your farm that you're going to have as a secondary product? That's super, super important because then you're not pulling out your hair and wondering what the price per pound or per gram is going to be when you come to harvest in the fall time. So we really um, encourage that. Here's a picture of a really super easy living planter. Um, this is something that you can do. You know, just by using the biology and what you have around in your area. Um, here was an example of what Josh had just done uh, a photo of before of taking a hillside. 
This was a bunch of downed trees from fire in California. They're dealing with a whole lot of fire in Northern California. And a lot of farmers were left thinking, oh, well, what am I going to do with these half-burned logs? Well, they created incredible opportunities. And out of a lot of those burned logs and, and burned land is hope. And this is a perfect picture of hope. And this garden was made just in a couple of days. And that's all with down. And this was immediately planted. And all of the dirt was turned into soil right there on, on the property and was planted. And they had an incredible year. And this is Hard Rock Mountain. Um, this is another example of what you can use. You know, a lot of us have wood-fired stoves, I believe, here in Michigan. Um, and it really gums up your stove with a lot of creosote to, to have, um, you know, uh, the outside of the tree. So here we've just taken some cordwood and made an instant bed. It's that easy. And this is going to be digested by fungi in about four years, and then you can just add more. So not only is it becoming an ability to hold water, it holds microorganisms, it holds nutrients, it holds humidity in your soil. And this is something that just can be made right on your own property. Just covering the ground and layering and covering the ground and layering and the breakdown you can then after, you know, after that straw breaks down over the course of like one or two months even, you, you can just take a hoe and just kind of you know, pile it up on your bed underneath plants, and it's an incredible, it's basically like a compost pile in between all your beds. So really, I mean, we have compost piles, and, and it's it's basically, it's to, to get us the biomass is the big thing, so that's why polyculture is so important, and thinking about, you know, natural environments, which we talked about, because the mass goes away fast, and, um, you know, so that it, this eats up, you know, a huge amount of hay, and, and during the summer, we can cover that two or three times, and um, it turns into worm food. Um, you know, so um, with eucalpture, there's more than one ways of doing it. You should like um, Leighton talked about the perk test, and that's a really good idea to think about. You know, you should um, look at your dirt and and the soil that you have on your area, and, and assess what you have because you might want to dig in and put logs in the ground, or you might want to mound it on top. It, based off your local area. If there's too much clay, mounting it on top is going to transform the dirt in between your aisles. And so also using it and by putting it into the ground, you can utilize it as a swale, which will um, soak in your groundwater um, during rainstorms and it will help uh, divert the groundwater and charge up the wood that's in the soil. So um, thinking about your area and what you have, what kind of sticks that you have. Maybe if you have more acidic type of sticks, that would be something you would bury, you know, in a little bit more. And then as you're building your cubicle beds, then you're kind of starting to get some more usable material towards the top. Because once you really just need a buffer of good soil for this, the plants to start. Once the plant like roots start, they can really dig into some pretty raw material. It's, it's pretty phenomenal to go from the mindset of finished super soil to um, soil that's pretty raw underneath. And it's amazing after one year. Um, we've seen incredible changes after one year um, on farms, like phenomenal whole earth changes. And um, that's phenomenal. Um, here's uh, Green Source Gardens, the beginning of their, their journey, which was a, a one acre, one and a half acre, is it, I think, um, where they utilize their forest. They have 80 acres and they, just 
simply built on top of their their dirt and you've i'm sure you've seen their their journey and it's really really beautiful and it's um just laying down and, and having um utilizing the carbon nitrogen ratio is really important with culture because it can be overdone with too much carbon you know i mean that roots don't grow through wood chips so you have to use some intelligence and in the way that you put it together so if you're utilizing really raw material like raw logs and, and carbon it makes a lot of sense to use some kind of high nitrogen manures or some kind of plant material to kind of initialize the uh, initialize the, the breakdown but this is um digging the side of the of the earth on top of the on top of the sticks to be able to utilize the living soil and the native soil in your area and this was their very first year, and this is a really good example of what you all are looking at here in Michigan, is that once you get all of your licenses, and oh my God, we've got everything all dialed, and we finally, you know, go, oh, I got the license, and then you don't have any money left. And I don't know if you all are dealing with that, but that's definitely what a lot of cannabis industry people are dealing with, and that's definitely how Green Source Garden, so they bought their land, and then they just said, well, how are we gonna turn it into a garden? And this is what they did. Um, this is another picture of exactly the same story. A hemp farmer that, you know, had gotten all of his licensure, finally got the land, was ready to set up, and he really didn't have any money, so what can I do? And this was a suggestion that we gave, and this was his very first year in growing. And that year, I think he produced 300 pounds just in this one acre of hemp. Yay. Off of zero, zero money. Lots of energy, but zero money. And that's something, and really healthy, incredible crop. And, and what? Oh yeah, not utilizing plastic here, and, and we've been encouraging this particular farmer who is also pure certified, you know, to, to take out those aisles. So those aisles then are gonna be coming with cold compost piles like we were talking about. If you just layer your aisles over and over and over again throughout the season with all of your weeds or whatever you want, then you can take that layer and you can dig it and put it right on top. And that becomes, you know, beautiful soil. And this is an example of uh, that garden and, and what it did in one year. Yeah. And here's our farm. This was a one year, we decided that we wanted to have more pollinator uh, gardens, as many pollinator gardens as we can, because we know that the gardens that survived this bong aphid, the hemp aphid that a lot of people are having, which we've actually heard in Switzerland, that there's more weight per pound, or more weight to a plant in aphids than there is in flowers when they cut it down. Yeah, it's gross. But then you go to the neighbors, who's doing all regenerative practices, who's got tons of pollinator um, species and all different types of plants that are feeding a lot of different pollinators, have zero aphids. None. Because Parasitical wasps and different wasps, which is what you learned about from Suzanne, can eat, you know, tremendous amount of aphids in one day. So how do we keep clean gardens? Well, it's not really up to us. Let's just watch what nature has done, what Mother Nature has given us. Um, but this is a great example of one year. We just sort of put a little bit of the native soil around in our area, rolled out, you know, a straw bale and planted a bunch of zinnias. And we saw tremendous amounts of growth on our whole property just by adding this. This is just a zinnia garden. I love breeding zinnias. Pollinators. And also, this is little bee houses for the minor bees. And, and 
and finding out what it is that pollinator species like, getting to know your pollinators too. Talk about it with your kids. Find out, you know, when we talk about learning a new language, and if you learn just one word a day, well, there's a new language and entomology too. Just learn a new insect every day and what it does, what it likes to feed on, where it likes to live, and try to help create those um, spaces for them. Um, so yes, so um, yeah, just creating natural habitat is your biological control. As much as you can get help from something like a passive system, you know, the better off you are. And, and indoors, that's a different environment. Um, we're going to go into how to, you know, build some soils on the indoor um, as well to mimic this on the inside. Um, this is an example of building a simple hoop house and taking uh, straw and local native soils and just basically making a layer cake um, within one year and be, and then just being able to grow plants right in it and having incredible health and uh, you know just and then and then just and here and here's another example of you know doing a, a, a garden um, rod and we use squash to do it the first year. So crop rotate, if you have the ability to move around a little bit, you know, crop rotations is really essential and keeping health. Whenever you have, you know, big areas of one thing, you're, you're asking for problems. So we, we utilize um, some hugo culture um, through squash and corn because that can be used with um, pretty hot compost. So this is just raw, um, this is rose bushes and elderberries and hawthorn and apple trees and fir trees and, and also you know fresh fir um, branches and um, then it's covered with compost that we made um, from the local we have one farm that, that we get a lot of our compost from which is a totally natural farm so um, we do have that one farm that we get anything else that doesn't grow in our, in our, in our farm to inoculate it and so covered it and then this is uh, planted it in the we the the compost was pretty warm, so it was kind of a transition of, of you know the roots being okay, but the roots took really well, and then we grew you know a huge amount. It's, it's kind of hard to see, but that it was just a whole sea of yeah, just thousands of pounds of squash, and and we have you know potatoes growing in the background and um, garlic growing and, and everything. So it's you know that's our diversity and that's our security through food and that's our security also with the garden. Uh, we have a poly a poly leaf. Poly. Yeah, so that's a really good. Um, uh, we think we like that kind of plastic because it's a good diffusion of sunlight, and it just kind of spreads the light around. And I wanted to say something really quick, just because your region of zone is really similar to what we all are dealing with, is that you know after all of these years of learning, we take the plastic off every year because we found that the plastic, the gardens that we take the plastic off, it just thrives more than the ones that we've left dry all winter. So let it go through the natural cycle of the snow, of the rain, and it starts to, you know, gather more microbiology. So, you know, and, and you're saving yourself tons of money by not allowing a cold snowstorm and cold and hot weather on that greenhouse that's gonna last a whole lot longer. So taking the time and energy just to take it off during the winter time has been very successful for us. Um, here's an example of an indoor-outdoor uh, indoor sort of greenhouse. It's, it's a really, yeah, it's a hybrid greenhouse. 
um, and this is a funny story, is that they started, they bought this greenhouse and it, and it had concrete on the bottom and they just said, this isn't going to work for us. We're not having success in this greenhouse because the other greenhouses that we have going on are directly touching the earth and they're just thriving and yielding tons more. This was a continuous problem, this greenhouse. So they came in with a jackhammer and they jackhammered out these uh, beds and are not having those problems anymore. And part of that is the greenhouse companies, um, you know, they give you a blueprint that says, you know, this is what your foundation looks like and this is what's going to, you know, this is part of the permit process and stuff. So sometimes it's knowing the rules and, and maybe you, you build your greenhouse a certain way, but you know, this is coming after the fact. Um, here's another example of just, you know, connecting it to the earth. And the pots, like, you know, we talked about, you know, they, they, they dry out too fast and it's hard to keep your biology stable and that's what this can do and then you can put inoculated logs in between if you want of mushrooms and then cover crops and then you know if you have the sides open in the days and it allows pollinators to go through the greenhouses so here's our green life productions in nevada and a lot of people ask if you can have a natural system indoors and if it can pass tests because that's a big issue and um the Green Life Productions is doing it in Nevada and they've done it for a long time. A lot of you guys know about them because they've been around for a long time and it's just a really good example of soil building, soil testing, learning what your soil is, learning how to utilize your cover crops. We talked about, you know, last night how cover crops can also be, you know, a potential problem in your system. So, you know, utilize them with intelligence and utilize them as a as an indicator to what's going on. You know, it's not just put a cover crop off and walk away two weeks later, come back and hope everything's good. So, and also with cover crops, which this is just in between right now, this is the, their last harvest on the set, uh, on the bed, and then a fresh planting, um, and then you can grow um, cover crops. So cover crops that are really young and then just pulled up and put on the ground are really healthy. Because plants that are really young and really vigorous are less likely to attract pests. They're less likely to take a type of colonization for pests to get on plants. So super long-term um, indoor cover crops really can become a problem. And I think that's something to really utilize. But the, the purpose of a living soil is to have that in there because you really have to have something for the soil to live on. So I don't think we can totally bypass having um, cover crops on the inside, but I think it's something that, you know, you really should pay attention to. And just to touch on cover crops, what we do is we do many, many rotational cover crops throughout our season. Many, many. And we look at all the different um, values of the minerals of, you know, that particular plant and seeding that we're doing. And we like to start with chickweed or clover at the very beginning of the cycle. That's the very um, nitrogen, awesome nitrogen fixers. You can do peas. Peas are a wonderful indicator to find out how much, uh, you know, if you have any pathogens or any problems in your environment because they're, they're, they're really sensitive. So if you're wondering about glyphosate or you're wondering about different pesticides or anything that's been on the soil, plant peas, it's going to tell you. They should come up nice and green and vigorous immediately. So planting seeds is really wonderful. Peas is a great indicator. So we start with our chickweed, we start with our peas start with a little bit of clover, and then we let it get about that big. And then we pull it out, and then we move on to buckwheat, because buckwheat grows so great in a really hot system, and you know, hot, hot environment. So 
you know, maybe as June and July is starting to come on and the plants are still vegetating, buckwheat is amazing, fenugreek is really great as well. What is it that you can find that's cheap and easy? We've had way more success with seeds than grains, and I want to tell you why. Grains have a tremendous amount of carbohydrate and sugars within them, and it can, and it can draw beneficials as easily as it can draw pathogens. So we just suggest that if you're going to be doing a cover crop or you're going to be rotating your cover crop species to really stick with seeds. Seeds have a much higher nutrient value and it's sort of infinite possibilities of a full spectrum, you know, mineral that it can give your plants as well. So then we move into fenugreek um, and then end with, at the, very, at the very end of the cycle is end with poppy. Poppy seeds uh, contain the highest amount of phosphorus than any other plant on the planet. And, and, and if you just grow them up that much and you pull it out and you, you know, put it right down on your soil, then that's going to be readily available phosphorus to your plant as soon as it's doing that transitional change into flowering. Yeah. Rip the roots right out. That's what we do. We rip the roots out and then we go and replant right over it. Yes. And that's worked well for us. There are examples where cutting the tops and leaving the roots in the ground can, you know, build the roots more, and that can be a way, you know, and you know that's there is a technique to cutting it and stuff. So I think it's you know learn learn what you know you're using and outdoors. I think that makes a lot more sense, like out in the fields, because then you're you know really getting the atmospheric prep, you know work into the soil, and then the roots can be really dug in. But I think the idea of green manure and stuff is just pulling it out young and just going with new seeds. Yeah. And also, you're going to create a nice aeration for those top roots, which really like a lot of that oxygen. And then it's going to create a wonderful environment for the next planting. And it's phenomenal. Like, you'll be pulling up those little babies, you know, that are maybe about that big. And then you'll come back four days later, and, and it's fully digested when you have a really healthy soil system. So it gives those roots that are up at the top, you know, you know, a lot of really easy nutrients in a very quick way. Um, now we're going to move on to animals. Uh, we have had animals and we currently have animals on our farm now. Um, and the relationship of human agriculture, um, animals are amazing. They can be incredibly helpful. And we've been sort of laughing because we've seen a lot of changes in this industry. And we say that the alpaca is a new pit bull to, to the cannabis industry, which is really cool because it used to be that you would go up to a cannabis farm and you'd be greeted by, you know, maybe eight pit bulls, and now you're greeted by eight alpacas. <laughs> so the alpacas, have, we've noticed tremendous changes on a lot of the pure certified farms just in one year on inviting in animals. And really think about, you know, do the research. Look at what's going to do really well in your area and your region and talk about what animals in your region maybe need to be saved. A lot of the cannabis farms um, out on the West Coast have become wonderful homes for animals that have been mistreated in the industry. So maybe we can be helpful to that too. So just bringing in hay and straw turns out amazing manure that can be top dressed just right onto your beds. And we really like that. We, we do that all the time. That's what I was talking about with cold composting, is that if we see manure, just throw it right on the top because that's easy. We don't have to be doing all of these different pro um, you know, processes to get the same result. And this is just beautiful cover crop that's growing right out of um, uh, manure, lava manure. 
and this is goat. And this is, I mean, you can see this is just one, one year. Just, I'm sorry, this is just during the winter season of how much this goat manure has had. So if, if you have goats and you're constantly thinking about layering, 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 well then you're making your compost pile right in your, right in your animal pens. And that's something that we do also with our chickens, is that we only take all of the bedding out of our, out of our chicken coop once a year because we've been piling it with LAB, IMO, different straw, then we do the manure, you know, then the chicken poop, and just keep piling and piling. When we pull it all out, it's totally readily available soil that the chickens have been working through all season long. And also, um, yeah, you have a question? Okay, so what, what the $24 was was for predators. 
And also, we, we only bring one thing onto our property, and that's C90, S-E-A-90. We really believe in it. It's a 90-trace mineral. We believe that we're mineral deficient, our soils are mineral deficient, our plants are mineral deficient, our animals are mineral deficient, and this is something that you can bring onto your property and have full spectrum mineral. Essentially making a seawater ferment like Chris talked about, and C90 is dehydrated seawater from the Sea of Cortez, and it has, you know, up, you know, says on, you know, that it can have up to 50,000 organisms in it when it comes alive, along with the 90 trace, 84 trace minerals and six rare earth elements because of the ocean. So, um, you know, it's just a really good um, thing for foliar spraying and, and adding to FPJ. Oh, and you eat it, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. we just, you know, it's So, you know, I think it's important um, for seawater and kelp and everything. We use kelp in our dragonfly products. And um, when we get kelp, we always test it at the highest testing for toxicity. And the areas that we get them from um, are tested to human health and, and have zero toxicity in it. So oceans are um, really toxed out, you know, especially near, near cities. And so I think that's a, a hesitation for us to gather a seawater. I think it matters where you're from. I think it. I think with you know we're we're talking about you know clean cannabis and good food streams and testing soils and testing waters. But when you buy a fish, have you ever seen like a water test? I mean, is there any toxicity reports to fish and stuff? So um, I think that's why we this feels good to use something like a C90 because it has a test on it. I think mean, if you're in Hawaii or you're in some place where there's like a lot of current and the water's clean, I think that can be a, a beautiful thing. I mean, why not get it from the source? And I want to believe in the mother ocean, you know, as a, as a positive thing. I just think that it's um, extremely toxed out, especially, you know, you, you know, by Bellingham be, being in between Seattle and Washington. I mean, I, I, I would be really careful of that. And, and pay attention to your algae blooms and different things that happen in, in the areas. A lot of things come up with crustaceans and stuff like that. that and, and using shrimp meal and crab meal is something we're also really careful about in our soils and our mixtures, even though it has chitin, so so does fungi. Fungi is, you know, is made of chitin. So I don't I don't think we we're really careful about the inputs. You know, so good question. Yeah, so anyway secondary products, you know, growing something underneath your, your canvas is, is really important. Um, but nettles is one of our favorite things in life. Um, and nettles is something that you all can readily grow here in Michigan. And those of you who don't have nettle gardens, get one. Yeah, oh yeah. And, and planting nettle seed is, is, is easy to do, but also just grabbing a little bit of the rhizome and planting it in areas that, you know, it really makes depleted areas very rich. And um, it's just, we, this is, this is an example of just one patch of nettle that we had. This was cut four times in one year. So this is the final growth of what it looks like in, in the fall time. So this was cut four different times. So that made it, that means it made four big, beautiful brews. Nettle is a full spectrum nutrient. It has all minerals in it. It has, you know, wonderful polysaccharides. It, it's great lignans in it, um, silicates. I could go on and on. And it's, it's a wonderful feeder from the beginning of the cycle of your gardens all the way to the very end. And it feeds nutrients, or feeds microbes really easily. Here's a picture of its rhizomes. This is what I was talking about, that they can be replanted into areas. 
just very shallow, probably only about an inch to an inch and a half on the edge of your gardens or in areas that's a little bit shady or, or make sure that it's a damp area too. Nettles really likes a lot of dampness in its early growth. It can handle drought situations more like in the August times. That's fine, but its roots need to get, you know, really uh, in that. Uh, we had a question from the online. It says, can you use aquarium salt if you're in the middle of nowhere? What would be an aquarium salt that's different? Then is that like a table? I mean, that basically for, for for salt, what you're looking for is organisms and 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 nutrient. I mean, uh, and trace minerals. So that's why something from the ocean or a living uh, an earth salt, you know, from the Himalayas. So being in the middle of nowhere, is, there's someone probably still delivering mail to that person, and you can order stuff online, and, and um, that might be you know smart to do. Um, so look for organisms. Find out on the aquarium salt what's in it. And a good example to that is that there's not there's only like up to five trace minerals in regular sea salt, and there's 17 trace minerals in pink Himalayan salt, and the C90 is 90 trace minerals. So not every salt is treated equally, and not every salt is is bad for you. It's actually very important that all of us have high mineral salt every day. It's what will keep our metabolism and, and things going properly. Um, here's a beautiful picture of comfrey. Comfrey is another one. It's a wonderful bioaccumulator. You can plant it, it grows like crazy. A lot of people always say, oh, I'm so worried about it. It's gonna take over certain gardens. Well, if you can harvest it three or four times and you're just cheering, it's fantastic. It makes beautiful soil underneath it. It has a lot of wonderful nutrients to it. It melts easily inside of a ferment, and that's what we, we work with personally. We're gonna have some pictures up here. Well, this is an example of uh, cannabis plants. Um, so those are old stocks from last year, and this is a big pile of compost, and then we have the, the accumulation coming up into the, the company. Chickweed is something that grows as a seed. It's something that is really easy um, to eat and really it's good in salads. It's good to put in uh, teas and it also is a good ground cover. A lot of times it's wild, but you can get seed for it. Creates a mycelial net underneath it. Um, horsetail, fantastic, awesome, wonderful. You can use it in all of your different fermented plant juices. You can use it as a foliar. We highly suggest to use it as a foliar. We've done a lot of observational research from year to year plants that we spray with a horsetail tea at the very beginning of its inception all the way through doesn't have any problems at all. And the ones that we didn't spray, they might have problems. So this is a really wonderful protective silicate coating over your plants so that the cyanobacteria really can, can thrive on a lot of the different minerals that are sprayed on there with the horsetail or that are inside the horsetail. Another picture of horsetail, bracken fern. Uh, ferns, wonderful source of phosphorus. We talk about how phosphorus can only be found in phosphates. Untrue. Plants uptake lots of different nutrients and minerals in, in the soil, and ferns take up a lot of phosphorus. So you can use ferment in this in your soil, you can use it in your different ferments. Um, and again, we were talking earlier about leaves and the importance of leaves in the fall time. Um, they're wonderful mineral accumulators. 
and different trees have different types of mineral accumulation in it. Here's Tulsi basil. Um, we really love to put as much terpene-rich nutrient biomass into our fermenters and into our soils as we possibly can. We are getting super high terpene counts in all of our flour, all of it, like really high. So we think that it's important to have terpene-rich plants because then maybe it will remind the plant of to uptake terpenes. Calendula, wonderful plant. It grows like crazy. It contains lots of wonderful omega oils in it that are great for your soil, that are great from certain types of microorganisms and different fungi. Here's a plant that actually, um, you know, really draws a lot of bacteria, but also fungi because of its oils. So it's pretty interesting flower. Yeah. Okay, so the question was, is what could I source that might have terpene levels in it? You know, terpenes are a smell. So the more smelly the plant is, then you're gonna have higher terpenes in it. Um, it's a great question. And, and so you really wanna go for really good ar aromatic plants to make sure that there's a certain percentage or you know, maybe 30% or 20% in your soils that you're working with aromatics. Because it has um, tips of uh, any of the the pine trees, the fir trees, um, they contain a tremendous amount of ascorbic acid. And it's funny because at the time that these are blooming in the early spring is exactly the time that your plants and all your gardens really could use a wonderful foliar of this beautiful ascorbic acid. Yet again, a wonderful terpene-rich plant that you can utilize. Roses. Roses have a lot of different oils in them. Another wonderful aromatic uh, in our area, we have a lot of wild rose, so we use the wild rose plants, we use the flowers, and it, it just seems to, it's something we have readily available. A borage, wonderful for pollinators, also another one that is a bacteria feeder as well as a fungi feeder because of the omega oils in it, very high in omegas. Very easy to grow, and the pollinators just freak out on it. Um, this one is elder or um, valerian, sorry my friends. Uh, so this is valerian. Valerian is, has like thousands of years of information on it as far as it, you can use it in a foliar spray. It's used in a lots of different biodynamic preps. If you use it in a foliar spray, then it's really said to draw a lot of really beneficial cyano and different compounds, different microbiology from the air. Can I ask you a question about that? Yeah. Yeah, they're absolutely going to be safe. The question was is that her valerian that she had at her house had powdery mildew, she took it out, and now there's new babies coming up. Well, those babies might have a resistance to the powdery mildew for all we know. So just watch for it and, and make sure that it's okay. But Maybe add some compost or some kind of fresh soil on top of it to kind of, you know, change the environment underneath it. It might have been that the soil was, you know, a little dried out in that area and it kind of lend itself to that powdery mildew, so maybe you could do a, a little bit too, soil preparation underneath it. Um, so the next one here is um, yacone, and yacone is a really amazing plant that's coming to our life, and it's Y-A-C-O-N, 
It's from South America. It's one of the lost food of the Incas. And um, the reason why we like it is because it's uh, super sugary. It's really sweet. It has a lot of inulin in it and po polysaccharides. It has uh, a lot of leaf matter, a lot of biomass, which you can use in teas. And um, if you grate and juice the, the yacon tubers afterwards, it's really easy to make a, a, a molasses out of it. And it almost tastes exactly like molasses. So it's a, it's a way you can make a, your own sweetener, which is really, really awesome. If you want to make some you know, Korean natural farming and you want to do it from your own, from your own thing. It's also a good way to build soils um, and break up the soils as well, like the daikon. And and we we really only use yakon as our sweetener. We we don't use sugars um, in, in a lot of our our fresh fermented teas, really because we use it fresh. A lot of times sugars are used to stabilize it on a shelf. But one thing that I think is important to talk about with sugar is that sugars feed a lot of pathogens as well as it can spark. Um, beneficials at the very beginning. You just want to be really careful about what kind of sugars that you're using in your ferments. And we really have found that the sugars that are in the fresh plant is enough to be able to spark the microbiology that we're looking for. And we can see that under a microscope and we can see it when we taste the teas. We can see it in, in the way that the teas look and, and it's bubbling up. Um, so really having whatever sweeteners that you're going to use in your garden, I mean in your kitchen, as well as what you're going to be using in your own you know, gardens, I really suggest to be minimal on your sugars because in, in all of the health and, and knowledge that I know, I'm a midwife as well as I have a whole lot of naturopathic experience and we've done clinics all over the world, free clinics for women and children, and I've really noticed a lot of disease and and problems with uh, sugar. And I've also seen that same thing in people's ferments and when they're using it improperly. So just be really careful about your sugar content. And if you're bringing in sugar, then what type of microorganisms is that sugar feeding? Something to think about. So, yeah. Is there anything to be done regarding sugar with like sweet water? Oh, I mean, I think it's fantastic. He said, is there anything to be done with tapping maple trees to be using sugar water? Sugar water is a fantastic source. It's closed loop. It's biologically intelligent. It's going to grow the right kind of organisms that you're looking for on your land, especially if you're tapping your, your trees right there on your land. I mean, it's a wonderful sugar source. And it also ferments really quickly, so you want to be able to use it fresh or keep it in the fridge or keep it cold. sour after not too long and so you know it's just how to utilize it and I think maybe cooking it down you know so that's the thing about the water is that um, it's, it's, it's uses quite a bit of water you know to cook it down like 100 gallons to water whatever it is but also birch trees are another thing you can tap you know we did we've done that and, and gotten amazing water out of it so yeah utilizing the water out of the birch tree or the maple tree is going to give you a lot of those trace trace minerals um, here, here's a picture of skunk cabbage. We'll make this, let me get through this. This is skunk cabbage. This is something that also grows here in Michigan in the early spring. As far as I'm concerned, whatever terpene that cannabis has, skunk cabbage has. It's, whenever you go by a, a big skunk cabbage uh, patch, it just smells like a fresh ganja patch to me. 
um, oxalic acid. It's wonderful. It will totally shut down our system. It's not something that we want to eat or ingest because it really can hurt our, our, our liver and our kidneys. But oxalic acid helps draw um, calcium out of the soil and helps make more readily available to plants. So this is another wonderful thing. It grows massive. And if you, and if you go in the area, we really suggest that any time that you're taking biomass from one area or region, you also take a small little handful of soil because that handful of soil has all of the intelligence to break down that skunk cabbage because it's there where the skunk cabbage is growing. So not only can it grow the skunk cabbage, but it can also help break down the skunk cabbage. And that's what we do with any anything that we're you know, utilizing in any of our ferments or in our soils. I always take a little bit of soil as an indigenous microorganism that's intelligent to that particular plant, and I put it into the soils or the ferments. Aloe. Anyone who doesn't have it growing should. It's wonderful. And then I just think that it's a great idea. Go, go get a small plant, drink it, use it, you know, for all of your cloning, use it for, it's wonderful in any foliars. Plants really love it, as well as the bacteria on the outside of the plants. Yeah? If you guys are trying to find plants, would you guys just do local? Would you recommend, like, a big box store, like Home Depot, buying your plants there? Or do you have, like, a publication that you guys use? Um, he was, the question was just, do we have a publication that we use? How do we get our plants? How do we get our seeds? Go to your local farmer's market. You're going to find the most uh, intelligent to this area and this particular diversity in this environment is going to be at your local farmer's markets. Or go to somebody that's an amazing gardener and say, hey, what works in this area? I see that you're having a lot of success. What is it that works? Aloe is not a plant that, that grows here year-round. It's only going to be something that's an annual. So this is this is an exempt an exemption of um, you know utilizing what's what's already native to your zone and area. Strictly medicinals online has a lot of medicinal plants, and that's uh, something that you can take a look at. You know, for adding something into the area that might not be here. Um, pea seedlings is another one that has a lot of really good food um, and different varieties on that as well. Um, the OG plant online um, or Sweet Leaf Organics in Oregon has a whole bunch of uh, yak cone crowns. We didn't get into it, but the yak cone started from crowns. The tuber is what you use, but when the tuber grows out of the crowns, and that's what you save each year. So you save that over winter. Who is that? Who is the Sweet Leaf? Sweet Leaf um, Organics in Oregon or the OG plant um, on Instagram. Yeah. And you had a question in the back, did you still have a question? Oh, yeah. You guys had mentioned leaf compost, yeah. and I was just wondering how much of your soil is safe generally to be leaf compost? Well, I mean, if it's composted leaves, I mean, you could have it be, you know, a huge percentage of the year. It could just be all from leaf compost, you know. Um, that's going to be an amazing resource, and even being able to find a part of your forest that's been growing for, you know, a thousand years, there might be a pretty good cache of of dirt in there and you can you know use that to seed your your gardens or anything like that so leaf mold is, is really a gold thing and then utilizing leaves in new soils and stuff like that you know that's kind of a carbon um ratio thing that you'd have to you know utilize it could you know be a little much in, in, a, in a in a bed of dirt but if it's been breaking down for a year or longer then it's going to break down super fast and be really good for worm farms too 
Um, turkey rhubarb, another wonderful source of phosphorus. It grows like crazy. Rhubarb loves Michigan. <laughs> so it's a great uh, bio um, uh, mass for your gardens. And here is some oka. Um, we, we, we put this picture in here because we saw a lot of sumac trees. You all have a whole lot of sumac. So as we were driving around, we saw the sumac. It's wonderful as a foliar. It's a great aromatic. It's another one that's great terpene residue or uh, terpene counts, as well as it has a tremendous amount of scorbic acid. And it's just really nice as a foliar to put into a ferment as well. And it's great for, for our own human consumption of vitamin C. Um, and this is cannabis roots. Cannabis roots are, are, are equally as important to put into your soils, your ferments, your medicines as the actual cannabis flower or the cannabis leaves. It, can, it has different types of cannabinoids than even the flowers have. So that's something that really completes the whole cycle. Whenever I make medicine, I always make sure that I put as much below as I put in above because then I know that I've got the full cycle of that plant present in the medicine, which is going to bring a higher medicinal value to our customers and our patients. Um, here's our LAB. So we originally would get our milk from our neighbor um, and we would go through the whole LAB process. We use labs in our ferments, but that's just one of the many different inoculants that we'll use in our ferments. So having LAB, like Chris was saying, every three months, you want to always be cycling it, um, and that's a good idea. And here's how we start our process. We chop all of our plant matter up. We found through the biomass and, and you know, some of the things that you can grow for your cannabis gill in the area, and the way that we liquefy it um, is just by chopping it up and using an open fermentation process and using the lactic acid bacteria basically really concentrate on soil building and, and having a really good soil and then having you know the fermented plant juice is a really good green um, juice to kind of put into you know a really carbon rich soil so it's kind of a balance you, you can overdo it during flower cycles for sure but it's going to give you a tremendous amount of growth and it's extremely useful um, on the property um, and you can go through a lot of material this is burdock which is um, burdock root is an invasive species in our area and the government pays people to, to eradicate it. So we were getting these truckloads of burdock and that's also high in phosphorus as a root and it's also really good for our blood. But we're able to uh, chop that up and, and put, you know, they have giant leaves and put that into teas. So we utilize um, plant teas a lot. Also, I just interviewed Dr. Russo, and this uh, just came out last week. He recommends burdock root because he says that it supports the endocannabinoid system. And he says that it's not fun to eat, he says, but you should eat it whenever you can. Exactly. We really promoted the growing of burdock. And also, it's a beautiful big root, and it can break up the soils. Um, an old Irish horse farmer in our area who's an amazing person, you know, uses uh, the burdock root in his soups and everything every day. He's an amazing, healthy person. Yeah, and the reason why burdock is so good for our endocannabinoid system is because it helps break stagnation in our body by cleaning our blood. So burdock is actually not only imperative to have in your gardens, but also in your kitchen. And it is actually delicious if you roast it and make a tea out of it. 
So there's a lot of different ways. I, I really love burdock also. You know, you can cook it just like a root. It's, it's really delicious and wonderful. And, you know, it's something to look at. There's, there's cycling that's happening throughout the year. And a lot of things that come to fruition at the end of the season are really high in phosphorus. And ones that come to fruition at the beginning of the season are really high in nitrogen. It's like you just watch nature and nature is already saying, hey, this is what you need to put in your plants this week. Or, hey, this is what you need to eat this week. So I think that eating seasonally and using nutrients seasonally is really working with the intelligence of our own system as well as the intelligence of your garden. Mm -hmm. um, marigolds, wow, they're so beautiful, they're amazing, wonderful, terpene rich, they grow like crazy, pollinators love them, grow marigolds. Um, thistle, thistle is an incredible nutrient, it contains so many valuable nutrients, super high in calcium, really high in cobalt, high in magnesium, high in manganese. Um, so right here we're just a simple stump, we're chopping it all up. Right here you can see that we're doing a flowering tea because there's apples in the background which is a wonderful source for fruiting and flowering potassium as well. So this is the time of season that our plants are really looking for these kind of nutrients and this is what's readily available at that time. With the apples you have to be careful that it doesn't go alcohol, you know, turn to alcohol so that's something you really just kind of use for like one week and then get rid of them just you know, as a, you know compost afterwards so yeah this is um as the season goes along you start getting into flower petals and yarrow wild yarrows and um the, the cannabis itself and the comfrey and then it just you that's where the polyculture comes in it's, it's the mulch it's the tea it's the soil building it's the environment for the plants and then after about one week with a really good fermentation, all the bubbles come in and you start to have the local um, yeast strands and um, kind of like making, you know, sauerkraut or making uh, sourdough and, and every area is different. Your teas can add, um, you know, a unique smell and unique terpene to your region. So open fermenting is a way of collecting your local wild yeasts. And, uh, you know, I just really wanted to say this is, we, We've been now almost three decades into doing closely farming like this. This is what works for us. We're not in opposition to any other type of practices. We've done a whole lot of KNF. We've been doing KNF since 2008. These are like trials and tribulations of what works. We also have done a lot of um, ancient Japanese fermentation. Sandor Katz has a tremendous amount of information on, on different types of ferments as well. And this is just what works for us. And the reason why we're sharing it with you today is because Michigan is so great because it, it's, it, it could also be working for you all in your environment. Um, and here's a fermentation process. One thing I wanted to back up on is that we do use an LAB. We'll also use an IMO. We'll use um, handfuls of dirt from different areas on our property. We'll use a little bit of compost. These are all different inoculants that we want to bring more and more diversity into this brew. Uh, you know, our son, he likes to fish. These are some bull trout. So we'll smoke the meat and then we'll take all of the leftovers and we'll turn it into a fish hydrolysate just right on our own property because it's closed loop for us. This is just right at the bottom of our property. 
Um, and you can see that this is, this is a T that's starting to be complete and done. This is a silicate layer that now becomes completely readily available to all the microbiology. This is separated from the plant and created a silicate right on the top. Yeah, go ahead. Is this just plant material in water just sitting there? Yeah, so the process is that we'll usually, during the hot summer month, it'll be about six to seven days of fermentation, which is an anaerobic fermentation. So we chop it all up, we put equal amounts of water, equal amounts of plant material, we let it sit there for about five to seven days. If it's a colder season, it can go all the way from 10 days to two weeks because warmth is going to bring more microbiology um, you know, into the ferment. And you can really tell when that ferment is done because it starts bubbling up and you can start seeing some green water. We don't, we don't mess with the ferment, we just leave it there. We might take a stick and very gently push the plant material back in that's risen up to the top, but it's not something that we mess with too much. And then we take that, I think we've got pictures of it. Oh no. Okay, and then we take the fermentation and we just take a bucket, so we've got two 250-gallon tanks, one that's the fermenter and then one that's going to be our bubbler and our aerator. So we're going to take all of the fermentation water with a bucket and we're going to bucket it into the empty 250-gallon tank that we're going to strain it into there, leave the plant material in the fermenter. So one's a fermenter, one's a bubbler, take the water, the tea and put it in there and then we're going to bubble it for 12 to 24 hours. Aeration is going to kill off any anaerobic compounds that we might be worried about in our root zone. So then it becomes a completely available tea right away. You can test it under a microscope. We highly suggest that when you first start making teas. Do a lot of testing. Look at it. And then you start realizing the smell of it. And, and we taste every single brew. So my taste buds are going to be faster to know what kind of, what I'm going to see under the microscope because we have so much experience in doing so many teas. So I think our taste buds then are going to tell us, oh, hey, this might need a couple more hours of bubbling or this is ready to go. And when you taste a perfectly wonderful tea, it tastes like water. It's incredible. It's totally inert. It's perfect pH, perfect everything because it will be like, really dark green water and you taste it, it tastes like beautiful spring water. So use your smell, use your taste buds, get to know your tea brews, and, and also look under a microscope so that you have that scientific backing as well. Yeah. Can you use it, um, you said available immediately, do you have to use all of it immediately or can you store it? Oh, we don't store any of it, so whenever we make our brews, we, do, we make sure that we're going to use the whole drench because it's just really nice when it's fresh like that. Right after it's been bubbled, you look at it under a microscope, you test it, and you just know that that thing is totally sparked and alive and ready to go. So that's why I was saying we don't really use sugars for any kind of preservation of it or anything. We use it right then and there. Because we have so much readily available biomass, we're growing tons and tons of biomass, so it just makes sense for us to be able to use it. It's like, well, when you've got fresh, you know, green beans, why have them canned? So, yeah. You can use any extra on trees, you know, you can just use it in your local, you know, external things and just bring help to everything. Art. Now, when you say that those nutrients are going to be readily available, is it going to be similar to chelation? Yeah, I mean, that's your natural chelation, is the fermentation, you know, just making bioavailability. 
If you could, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, you wouldn't want to use, you know, this at the very end of your cycle is going to, you know, affect, you know, some of the way that it grows. But it also, at the same time, is really inert, and it's not the same as, you know, using a, a saltpeter or some kind of like a, a different mm -hmm. nutrient that's a chemical nutrient, a synthetic. And it's still going to go through the microbiology process. So these teas are still going to go through the microbiology process. The plants that we grow are intelligent to uptake, you know, several different ways because they're organically and regeneratively grown. So they're going to be able to uptake it through their exudates and, and, and having conversation with microbiology more than they're going to direct feed. Yeah, so they're going to have that intelligence to do whatever. And, and if you have everything in the soil, then you have a plant that can uptake what it needs at any given time. And we really found that, you know, we, we, we tea often, but we really don't have to water or tea that often because deep soil cultivation is what we're all about. And the deeper that our soil beds can be, the less that we're going to have to water and the less nutrients that we're going to have to put into it. So. We've been realizing that when we first bought the land, we were maybe doing like 10 teas in a season, and now we're like down to four. It, and, and we really don't do much more watering than that because they're so deep. And I'm bringing it back to that we're gardening for when we're 85. So that's a smart way to do it because you're not spending money, time, or energy. Yeah. Uh, are you diluting those teas down at all once yeah. they go from, okay, at like what rates approximately? Yeah, probably about half. Okay. And so we'll make a really good tea and then we might even just put a hose into it and we know that it's gone half, it's constantly being drained out over the property. We live on a hillside, so all of our water and all of our tea and everything is up at the top of our property, so everything comes down. Utilizing gravity as much as you possibly can is really great. Then you're not spending time, energy, and money on pumps and all of these other systems. Yeah. If you're going to use it for foliar, you're going to want to dilute it more. No, no. Skunk cabbage would be more. And the question was, should you not taste um, a ferment that has skunk cabbage in it? No. I, I really don't put any noxious weeds um, that I can, that are harmful for human-like consumption into my tea brews. Some cabbage is an exception because if you really have to like eat it, you know, this isn't like tasting. It's not a poisonous thing. So I really like to stay away from things that might be poisonous or give allergic reactions to human beings, just because it's easier and what we want to have on our property, we're, you know, having it there for beauty as well. We use it for biomass, but we also want it to be beautiful, and we want our property to, to draw the birds from overhead, that they're flying over, and they're like, wow, that looks pretty sweet. Look at all that color, and that's a beautiful farm. I think I want to stop there, and they, and they really do. They actually do stop there, so visually beautiful is also what's going to be good for your health as well. Something in the back? Yeah, how should that ferment smell? The, the bubble water afterwards. So the question is, do you use the, the bubble hash water? Absolutely, it's amazing. So that, and also if we, if we can't utilize it directly back into a tea, we sort of bank it into compost or into our beds over the winter and stuff. Because for us, a lot of times we make the, the water hash over the winter. So then we, we utilize um, that, and then so it's like we don't maybe not have anything growing at that time. We've also foliar sprayed 
with the uh, with the hash water and drinking the hash water is really tasty too. I guess the one thing is there is like a resinous quality, a resinous quality to the hash water. So um, there you could overdo watering with the hash water, but um, to be able to do it here and there is going to be really really beneficial. Yeah, using it fresh is really crucial because it can turn. You had a question in the middle there. No, I'm all good. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You had a question. Well, I've been trying to hold back and let this presentation and stuff go, but I want to come back to make sure. Do we have time at the end or? or? Yeah. How yeah. How are we doing on time, Joshua? Uh, we gotta wrap it up. Oh, we gotta start wrapping it up. <laughs> okay. So, well, that's fine. We're just basically gonna show. We're, we have time right now to answer questions. We have the rest of it is just pictures of farms and what they've done with it. Yeah, well, do, go ahead and ask Yeah, I, mean, I just want to come back to hoop houses and stuff for a minute. Yeah. So, I'm Jeff. I have a little company called Nifty Hoops right here in Ann Arbor, and I've been working with, you know, local, organic, you know, market farmers and individuals and institutions and whatnot. And you're the first ones to bring this. I mean, thank you really for, for saying that there's something here. For, for most of my growers, they're going from, like, just growing outside in fields into hoop houses. That makes perfect sense. It's always, you know, it's always going to be in a beneficial to what they're doing, you know, they're able to, to really do amazing things and get more seasonality. It's not obvious to me, it hasn't been obvious to me that it's going to make sense for indoor growers to come outside and get into, you know, more bugs and, and, and more seasonality and all that kind of stuff. So I'm really into, I'm here to learn and to meet and to figure this out. I haven't done a whole lot with this, uh, this industry. I think there's going to be harmony between the two. Uh, I'd love to, to put on some exterior dap onto a structure and kind of partner with some people and you know see what that happens, you know, what goes on. I'll try to be available through dinner this evening to have conversations. I just want to make sure we have that and I just Sounds anything good. else you can say about Yeah, like, well there's 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 a lot of examples where indoor gardens are creating a tremendous amount of pathogens too. So I wouldn't say that indoor gardening is the safe, clean gardening, outdoor gardening is where all the bugs and all the problems are. So that's probably a, a matter of perception. But um, I, hoop houses do offer you the ability to do multiple depths, maybe in one year here, that might be hard, maybe you can get two. Hoop houses are also really nice for boutique strains that, you know, are really, you know, boutique's a word, you know, just for a high-end strain, you know, to be able to grow something here that might be able to last longer, or maybe you have a land-raised hoop house where you, you do it really early because they, they reach a lot, but you could be able to grow something that takes a lot longer to, to flower. You have a question? Yeah, well, I had a question earlier. Well, oysters and, and the Kingster Ferry are both really, really amazing. So I don't think you can say one is better than the other. I think Kingster Ferry probably um, breaks down organic matter faster, but they both are bio uh, micro remediators that reme remediate the, the water or the soil and anything that's in it. So both of them are extremely useful. Oyster is a little bit more finicky. So Kingstro Ferry, we just had tremendous uh, success, which we have later on in here as well. I think, you know, you can take Kingstro Ferry to spawn and you can put it in between a cardboard sandwich and you can just put it all throughout your property. And if you have enough carbon in your soils and in those areas, it's gonna take off like crazy. And that's yet another secondary thing. You can put it on your table, you can sell it. Um, it, it's one of the most delicious mushrooms and easiest ones to grow. And it really does break down a compost pile in half the amount of time. So really, uh, you know, getting more involved with mycology, bringing mycology into your gardens is really important. 
this is just a lot of biodiversity. Josh and I uh, specialize in wallypedes. We have two large wallypedes on our land. We really suggest that you guys look into wallypedes um, in at least sunken greenhouses because of the, the, the area that you're in and the season that you all have here. You'll have a much longer season as well as humidity control. Excuse me? Wally Peeny. And it actually just means hot house in Bolivia. W A L I P I N I. Or pit greenhouse. And um, we have all kinds of wonderful blueprints. We work with a lot of different farms in Wally Peenies and sunken greenhouses. It's just a really smart thing to do. Humans sort of lost. Um, a little bit of intelligence by building all of our houses on top of the ground. You know, you go to Arizona and people are like have tons of air conditioning when they could have just gone underground. There's just a lot of really good information on sinking your greenhouses. Um, and here's willows right on the edge of all of your, your gardens. You can plant willow and willow makes wonderful free fencing and it grows and it grows and you can coptice it, which means that once it starts growing all of its ends, then you can take those ends and you can cut them and put them in the ground to make more fencing. We do a lot of uh, willow planting for fences on our property because we find that we're always fixing the fences that we build with wood, but we don't ever have to touch or go back to these. And these are gonna be standing and be totally viable. Um, this is a picture in uh, Romania, and this is, you know, we went to the Romanian mountains just to learn about this weeding process um, of the fences. So this is a really amazing fence that was done with willow. Um, here's, here, here's the King's Rose Ferry planting that I was talking about, making sandwiches, putting it into your gardens in different areas, just sort of tucking it in. Um, just more mycology. And this is a perfect example of what your farm should start to look like once you already do your harvesting. So the early preparations in spring are equally as important as your late preparations in fall. Fall time is once you've got all your plants in and everything's taken care of. What are you gonna do with the beds now? So covering your beds with a lot of material. Um, you're asking about you know how much leaves is too much leaves. I mean, we don't know. We take all the leaves possible in one area and we just pile it as high as we can. And then we come back and it's soil by the spring. Um, and, and this is a perfect example of regenerative gardening. You know, we have massive yields. We work with all of our own breeding of both of our cannabis, all of our, all of our fruits, all of our vegetables. We breed for color, we breed for variety, um, and nutrition, so high nutrient-dense foods. And then this is everything that we're growing on our property, and we can be, you know, probably about 95% sustainable for all of our workers and us and our dogs on our property with everything that we grow, and our chickens, and all of our animals, with all of the biomass, and all of the food storage, and everything that we're doing. So self-sufficiency and closed loops is a good idea. It's a really, really good idea. Yeah? Well, I'm in Michigan, obviously. I'm in the central part of the state, and we're surrounded by big commercial farms. There's, they're everywhere. And the property I have, there's farms on both, there's uh, crop fields on both farms, and uh, both sides. Every time. 
spray ball hit. They do it two, they do it twice a year, they spray, and it literally covers my entire five acres because they hit it from one side and then they hit it from the other side. So what I'm asking is what is a good barrier that I can, I mean, and it's, I bought another piece of property and I am going to be in the same position I am right now. Like I can't, I really want to do what you guys are doing, but we are being contaminated on all sides. So like, what can I put up around my property to help bring this down? I mean, I've never spread around with my property. Trees, bushes, trees, poplars, they grow really fast. Willows, as much as you can to help clean any kind of a wind and, you know, overflow of that stuff. You can only do your best. It sounds like you're in a really horrible predicament and, and doing your best is all that you can do. So our suggestion was just plant as much biomass and as much you know vegetation as you possibly can. And if it's something that you're worried about consuming that, then plant things that are non-consumables. And then that's gonna bring more biodiversity to your property and create more health for your family. Because doing nothing is, is not, you know, I'm not saying you're not doing nothing, just an example, we can't not do, no, we can't do nothing, we have to do something. So planting more species and more biodiversity is at least gonna bring health to your five acres or anyone else's. And I know that that's a real issue here with Big Ag in the Midwest. And also the, the groundwater underneath starts to become a problem too. So the, the poplar trees also really have really good tap root um, uh, roots that go in the ground to help clean up the tap water. So tree layers, like she said, is gonna be your best bet. And that's a big reason why we moved to where we did is because we have no big agriculture around us, but you know, I don't think everyone needs to move super far away or anything. You kind of need to make it work where you're at, but that is a big reason why we moved. I'm not saying that because that sucks, but. So um, we're gonna kind of be towards the end and just talk about the Pure Collective and, and part of these um, you know, cycles of, of doing things naturally is sort of like, what do you do afterwards? So working together and creating products and being able to collective bargain and being able to um, either empower each other's products or come together and make the same products is something that we're really, really interested in and bioregional um, cooperatives. Um, we have a cooperative which is our, uh, you know, our certification as a collective now because we have businesses that are, that are resources to our farms and if, you know, if there starts to become more peer certified farmers in Michigan then maybe you guys can band together and, and buy truckloads of things together. Maybe it's hay or maybe it's alfalfa. And it's just a way to work together so that you can get good ideas and you can empower each other to make steps that are going to be able to save your business and come and, uh, and to move forward. And you're going to be able to find more.
diagnosed with cancer about eight months ago and I went on the oil and um, our way of giving back was when I was at, when I was done with cancer um, was that we wanted to gift it to cancer patients. So we're doing an indoor grow now and everything they read from research out of Israel basically said high THC is what you want to do for, for um, cancer. So my question is, he wants to start an outdoor grow. If we get all the cannabinoids like full, more full spectrum than the high THC, do you know of any instances where that's been successful? So the, que the question, we can talk, well, let me just touch on, I mean, the question is, you know, what's the best, um, you know, cultivars or chemovars to go for if you're trying to create cancer medicine or for pain medication or, or for, you know, shooting tumors or something. And, and maybe we can go into it tonight more, but I'll just say that, you know, THC and high THC really helps with pain. And it really helps with, with sleeping. Um, there's a lot of reasons why the high THC can be really good for a cancer patient. I think it's when you get into the type two where you have the, the equal part CBD and THC is when you start getting into a lot of um, corrective um, tumors and and medicine where it's curative. Um, when you go with a straight high CBD can be you know a way of shrinking tumors and, and getting stopping epilepsy and, and I, the list goes on and on. But it can be something that you give to children. It can be it's not intoxicant. You know it's it's psychoactive, but it's not intoxicant. So you know that if you're going to do something outdoors, I think it makes sense to have high CBD. If you have just high THC, then it takes you know a different set of regulations. So it's kind of two, two licenses. But I wanted to address that myth that I think that you all are talking about is that high THC can only be grown indoors. Absolutely untrue. Um, we know that the full spectrum sun is offering higher cannabinoids than indoor grows. So this is something that we're learning about because unfortunately Israel and, and the information they're gonna get given from Israel is only synthetic indoor gardens. So now more and more research is coming out and we are definitely doing comparative studies on outdoor gardens as opposed to indoor gardens and, and finding significant spikes in both cannabinoids and terpene ratios. Anybody else? Yeah. Have you ever heard of a Japanese wine reactor? Um, does that have something to do with brown water? Summer months, like for those of us that are indoors still. Okay. 
Yeah, well that's how our whole line of products are Dragonfly Earth Medicine products, is all dried plant material. And I just want to give a quick little background here, is that the, um, that our whole, everything that we did in moving forward with our dried herbs, yes you can dry it. So answering the question is yes you can dry it. Is it going to have the same nutrient value as fresh? No, it will not. Is it a great alternative? Yes, it absolutely is. You can use, you can grow your own biomass for your indoor gardens. You can powderize it up and dry it and then use it indoors or during the winter months. That's a great option. And that's what we did with our Dragonfly Earth Medicine products as well, which was based off of a pregnancy tea blend, by the way. I figured that cannabis plants are female and that was feeding a female and it works. So look into what kind of nutritive you know, plants that you can grow in your area to create nutrients. I think that we probably should be done right now, so I really want to thank you all for <laughs>